Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. In June 2015, the Supreme Court decided in Obergefell versus Hodges that gay marriage would become the law of the land. In the six years that followed, gay marriage has been routinely accepted across the United States and few blink twice when someone mentions his husband or her wife. I interviewed Jim Oberfell, the man whose name appears on the decision, a year after that decision, while he was on tour for the book Love Wins, which he co-authored. This podcast is being posted on the day normally reserved for San Francisco's annual Gay Pride Parade, canceled for the second year in a row due to the pandemic. This is a way to look back and be prepared looking forward to a time when gay rights will no longer be denied for the shabby arguments put forward in the name of religion. This podcast was previously posted on July 13, 2016. My guest is Jim Oberkefell, who is the co-author of Love Wins, The Lovers and Lawyers Who Fought the Landmark Case for Marriage Equality, co-written by Debbie Senzipper, who won the Pulitzer Prize with the Miami Herald. Since Oberkefell, which was the groundbreaking gay marriage decision in the Supreme Court, Jim Oberkefell has been a spokesperson going around the country talking about gay issues, gay rights. Let's talk about Love Wins, and of course, this refers back to your own life and your marriage to... John Arthur, and as he was dying, you wanted to make sure his death certificate listed you as a husband. But in Ohio, even though you were married in Maryland, in Ohio, you could not be listed as the husband. And that started the ball rolling, which eventually led to the Supreme Court decision of a year ago. Where does Debbie Senzipper come in, and how did this book originate? Over the two years of the case, a lot of people kept saying, hey, Jim, you should write a book about this. Write a book, write a book. And for the first year, a bit more than a year of the case, that wasn't something I could really seriously consider because I was still too deep in my grief. I needed to deal with that, work through that first. In April of last year, April of 2015, I got a phone call from Debbie. And she said, Jim, I have a literary agent who's been pushing me to write a book. And I kept telling her I wouldn't do it until it was something I was passionate about. Had you met her before? We go back about 25 years. There's actually a family connection. Debbie's first husband was John's first cousin, or is John's first cousin. So John and I were at her first marriage. So I've known her for 25 years. That gave me a sense of safety, a sense of comfort, because I did know her. We had a long-term relationship because of John's family. So she said, you know, I want to write a book, but I have to be passionate about it. And this story is it. Do you want to write a book? After I said, yes, let's do this, the very next day, she took a leave of absence from the Washington Post. And we started working on the book proposal. When that all came down and you were ready for this, 
had you seen her in those intervening years? Had you had any contact? Some, but not a lot. Her ex-husband, John's first cousin, does a lot of community theater. So we visited them in Miami and went to one of his performances. We actually went to their oldest son's bar mitzvah. So we had seen her a few times over the years, but it wasn't an incredibly close, regular relationship. She calls you. You go, yes. What happened then? So at that point, we had to get to work on the proposal because we decided to work with this literary agent that she had been talking with. And we wanted to have the proposal ready to go out on decision day, whenever decision day happened to occur. So we got right to work. And as you can imagine, I was fairly busy at that point because the oral arguments had either just happened or were getting ready to happen. And then with the wait for the decision, I was incredibly busy. So Debbie really dove in and she started doing research. She started doing interviews. She started doing some writing, not just for the proposal, but for the end result. So we worked on the proposal and we had it ready by mid-June because like so many other people, we thought, well, this is a major decision, likely won't come out until later in June, but we wanted to make sure it was ready in case it came out mid-June. So on decision day, within 30 minutes, our literary agent sent the proposal out. It was about 60 pages, an outline. You know, you have to talk about whom you think the readers are for this book, similar books, and then sample chapter or chapters. The opening of the book is mostly about you and John. So she more or less interviewed you for it, or how did that work? It was lots of conversations, lots of writing back and forth. Here's something I've written. What do you think? How can we incorporate this? How can we make it better? But it was really Debbie's investigative journalism background that saved the day because she was so good at interviewing not just me, but the other plaintiffs in the story, the attorneys, the judges. That's her talent. So she got to work interviewing, and then it was just a back and forth on the writing. On the writing itself, you worked on the writing too. I was involved in the writing, yes. How did that work? Did you write alternate chapters? No, it, it was much more of she would start with something, provide it to me. I would make changes. I would make edits. I would add stuff. I would write some. And it was that constant back and forth. And with the short time frame we had, I was relying on Debbie's skill as a journalist who works under deadline. So that was one of the helpful things in that she is really good at working very fast and working to a deadline. We had to do about a chapter a week. Did you do any of the interviews yourself? I did not. I connected Debbie with the people and helped her set those up. But again, that was her talent, her skill at pulling things out. Even talking with me, one of the things I loved about Debbie and her skills, I've always been one of those people who sees and remembers the forest, not the trees. So as we would talk about things and we were writing things and trying to pull up more details, I always thought, I just don't remember. I just don't remember. But she had this way of prompting me to access those memories and remember things that I thought were lost. In those interviews you had with her and even when you were writing, were there any salient things that were very important that you had completely forgotten or perhaps you didn't even think about before? It was more some of the details around what I had to do to care for John, the feelings that those types of things elicited in me. And there were absolutely a lot of things that I remembered or that Debbie helped me access that I'd forgotten about. And that happened over and over. John died from ALS. Correct. And you were approached by Al Gerhardstein just a few weeks before he passed away. A couple months. We got married on Thursday, July 11th, 2013. And 
a story about us and our effort and what we went through to get married was in our local paper that weekend. And friends of ours were at a party and they ran into Al, who's a friend of theirs, Al Gerhardstein. And our story came up in conversation. And John and I had no plans to do anything. We simply wanted to get married. We wanted to live out John's remaining days as husband and husband. No plans, no thoughts, no imaginings of a lawsuit. But Al, as he listened to our friends Barb and Mike, his gears are turning and he asked them if he thought we might be willing to talk to him. We got married on Thursday. That conversation happened on Saturday. Al came over for the first time on Tuesday. And it was that conversation, the first time we met Al, where he did something that changed the course of our lives and helped bring us closer to marriage quality. And that was he pulled out a blank death certificate. When Debbie did her research on Al, had you known all of that background, his relationship as a civil rights attorney? I knew some of that. I knew he was a local civil rights attorney, but I really didn't know the extent of his dedication and his fight towards civil rights, and especially towards the LGBTQ community. You know, he worked for five years pro bono fighting an amendment to the city charter of Cincinnati that said no laws could be passed to protect the LGBT community. And there's a family connection. One of his brothers is gay. So I knew some of that, but not all of it. And I learned so much more about Al and just gained a much greater respect for him. Well, he's a pretty amazing character. He's, I mean, he's dedicated his entire life to various civil rights issues at the cost of whatever he might have earned as an attorney. Uh, let me ask you this. A uh, year has passed. Has he seen any money from this case? Yes, and I won't remember exactly when this happened, but Al and all of the attorneys involved in this case from the four states, you know, they got the ruling that they are due payment from the individual states, and I know that has happened. Love wins. is two stories at once. It's kind of a love story between you guys, and it's also kind of a thriller. If you yeah. don't know the ending, <laughs> it's probably a little better, but even if you do know the ending... But, of course, it goes back to your relationship. During that period, you were together 21, almost 21 years. How did John view gay rights? How did you view it during those years? You know, the funny thing is, and I think in some ways it's surprising that I can say this, there wasn't really a topic of conversation for us much over our years together. You know, John and I never hid who we are. From the moment we became a couple in Cincinnati in a very gay, unfriendly city, and we worked together four different jobs. Every employer, every coworker, every client, everyone in our lives knew we were a couple. Now, we weren't the couple that walked down the street holding hands. Even if we had been in an incredibly gay-friendly area, that just wasn't John. He wouldn't have done that regardless. Would you? I would have. Yeah, absolutely. But I was always more effusive, more emotional. John was much more of the, the logic-based person in our relationship. I was all about feelings. So absolutely, I, I would have done that if he were willing. But I, I knew better than to push it because it, it wasn't who he was and he wouldn't have been comfortable. So we never hid who we were. And over our almost 21 years together, we absolutely talked about marriage many times. But for us, we didn't want to get married unless it actually carried legal weight. We didn't want to do it just to have it be symbolic. And in 1992-93, when this ballot issue was in Cincinnati to enact that charter amendment that banned protections for the gay community, we absolutely felt a level of unease in our city. We were surrounded by people, family and friends, who 
loved us, considered us a married couple. So there wasn't anything specific directed toward us. It was just that general level of our neighbors, our fellow Cincinnatians don't like us. But it wasn't really a topic of conversation for us. We just lived our lives. We surrounded ourselves with people we loved and who loved us, and we made the best of it. And so there was never any discussion about Harvey Milk or about the AIDS crisis, which at that point was coming to a, quote, end? There certainly was some because, you know, we were of the generation where it was coming to an end, and we certainly were impacted by it personally, friends, but not nearly to the extent of people older than we are. So that was definitely a conversation because there were people in our lives who were fighting for their lives. And I can't say that it was a huge topic of conversation. And I think John, he, John preferred to talk about happy things. He preferred to spend his energy talking about things that made him feel good, made other people feel good, as opposed to talking about things that weren't so happy. And in the days later, 2013, was it, I guess, when he was dying? He was diagnosed in 2011, in June of 2011. And by March or April of 2013, by that point, he started an at-home hospice care program. At that point, when you learned that you would not be on the death certificate, when you found out and told John, what was his reaction? Well, we found out together. Five days after we got married, Al Gerhardstein came to our home. He pulled out a blank death certificate and he said, now guys, I'm sure you haven't thought about this because who thinks about a death certificate when you've just gotten married? But do you understand that when John dies, his last official record as a person will be wrong. Ohio will say he's unmarried and Jim, your name won't be there as his surviving spouse. And he's absolutely right. We hadn't thought about that. Yes, we knew Ohio wouldn't recognize our marriage, but you know, that state amendment That was an abstract thing. That was an abstract concept. And it was being suddenly in this moment, in this situation where here is a concrete example of the harm that that does. And it broke our hearts. And I think more importantly, it made us angry. So we discussed it. And that very day we told Al, well, he asked us if we'd be willing to consider starting a fight with the state of Ohio. And we talked about it and we said yes. Did John have any specific words or just kind of like, yeah, let's go for it? He told me that it was absolutely the right thing to do, and he thought we should. But as always in our almost 21 years together, his concern was about me, not himself. And he said, you know, Jim, you have to realize this will all be on your shoulders. I can't do anything. Yes, I think it's the right thing to do, but I hope you understand it's all on you. I can't do a single thing. From a legal standpoint, in the end, did it make any difference just in terms of his estate, in terms of property? It didn't. And if I can say one slightly positive thing about ALS, you know the end is coming. You have time to plan. So we had the, the ability to update wills, update trusts, do other things financially and with property so that we weren't in a position where when he died, there wasn't as much concern over what would happen to everything we owned. So we were okay there. And one of the things that drove us is the fact that in John's family plot in a cemetery in Cincinnati, his grandparents bought this plot, 40s, 50s, I'm not sure when. And on the deed for the plot, they added a provision that only direct descendants and legally married spouses could be memorialized or buried on that plot. And we ran up against that issue when his mom passed away. And he went to the cemetery and said, I would like this spot for my mom. And I would like this spot for her partner of 18 years. 
and the cemetery said, well, I'm sorry, we can put your mom there, but we can't, we can't have him there because they're not married. We forgot about that. It wasn't until a few weeks into the lawsuit that I think was John, but one of us remembered that. And that was just one of those additional things. It's that thought that you mean we can't be side by side or be memorialized side by side where we'd been for 21 years. So it, there was very real harm, very real, real life things that were happening because of that amendment. And so you and Al began the work, mostly Al, of course. <laughs> And he was the one who found the other people who were involved, which included Correct. two couples with kids. Suddenly, we're talking about death certificates and birth certificates. Birth to death. During that period, were you involved beyond just you and John? Were you involved at all in the legal end of it? I can't say I was involved in the legal end. You know, Al explained his whole concept, the whole point of our fight, our argument, and it was a really pretty easy thing to understand. And then from there, it was just conversations with us to understand what our life was like, what we had to go through, every, everything we had to plan for and do. And then from there, Al was really good about insulating all of the plaintiffs from the legal aspect. He kept us foremost at all times in the case. It was He always made sure people knew it was about real people with real problems. But he and his team, and then as the, the legal team grew, they handled all of the legal stuff. When they needed something from us, they would let us know. But I can't say I was really deeply involved in the legal, in the legal things. And I did, you know, once he filed that second suit for the birth certificates, I was in the court hearings for those. I was involved as I could be. So it became an important thing to me to be there showing support and to be, to be involved. It feels as if, in Love Wins, Jim Oberkefell, it feels as if you and Vitaly family, the other people, all sort of became your own family. We did, absolutely. You know, this ended up being six cases from four states, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Michigan. And not surprisingly, because Al was our attorney, and, you know, there was another widower in our case who was added. His husband died. They had gotten married a few weeks earlier, and his husband died unexpectedly. They have two or three children. He was added. Our funeral director was added because he felt that he was at risk of, you know, being asked, being tasked as a funeral director. He, he, by law, he's supposed to fill out death certificates correctly. Well, if you're telling me to do that, but then you're saying, I can't recognize this lawful marriage, you're putting me in legal jeopardy. So he was added. And then the birth certificate case, and that was three lesbian couples in Cincinnati with children and Joe and Rob in New York who adopted in Ohio. Because it was Al, it was the same legal team, and I was able to go to the hearings, we very much became a family. As the case grew and other plaintiffs were added in the three other states, we certainly got to be friends with them. But for me, it was always that core group of the people that I, I was there and part of kind of from the start of their case as well. In the past year, are you still friends with them? You still in touch? Absolutely. Yeah, I had dinner with Kelly and Kelly and their beautiful daughter, Ruby, not too long ago. When I'm in New York, I try my best to see Joe and Rob. I actually saw them last week in New York and their adorable son, Cooper. So absolutely, we keep in touch. We did become a family. And how about Al? Are you still in touch with him? Absolutely. <laughs> it's hard not to want to keep that man in your life. He is just one of the most intelligent but kind and thoughtful and gentle men I've ever known. So, yeah, he is still part of my life. The case grew and grew, and there's an undercurrent 
maybe I'm reading something into it, but I'm talking about friends in the gay community that I know, there's a certain anger a little bit toward the, quote, gay establishment, the A-list people, HRC in particular. And I get the sense that at a certain point, Al was busy doing his thing. You were busy working with Al and people like HRC were just kind of coming in and as if suddenly you'd done the work and now they could come in and take the credit. Was that there at all? From my perspective, no. I mean, I did start doing a lot of things with HRC, but it was one of those situations where HRC saw what was happening, looked at this case, all of these cases, and they realized here was a story that was helping change hearts and minds. You know, I ended up to be the name plaintiff purely by chance because of the lowest case number. But it was also a story of love and loss, which people across the country can relate to. And I do understand why some people feel like some of those bigger organizations, HRC included, kind of swept in and and started taking credit. But I think what they're really good at is seeing the big picture and understanding where there are areas where we can capitalize on stories. We can make sure that story gets out even more and they can put their, their skills behind it. And for me, that was my perspective. They wanted to help make sure that this story got out and there's no doubt they've done a lot for marriage equality. I mean, they were huge advocates and huge, a huge assistance you know, in Maryland. John and I couldn't have gotten married if HRC hadn't been involved both monetarily and on on the ground in Maryland to pass marriage equality in Maryland. So while I, I understand sometimes there can be that undercurrent of anger, in our community, we're, we're sometimes too easy to lose sight of the fact that we are all fighting for the same thing. And we might go about it in different ways, but we are all fighting for the same thing. A lot of that anger comes from HRC supporting Hillary Clinton very early on, supporting a Republican, Mark Kirk, for the Senate. And let's face it, as a gay man, I don't want anything to do with Republicans, even if they occasionally make the right move. Overall, they don't like us. They don't want us. Nope. I understand that. I mean, I struggle with understanding log cabin Republicans. Because for me, I, I can't imagine supporting a party that does everything in its power to say, I don't exist. I don't, I don't matter. So I understand why the Mark Kirk endorsement created a backlash, created some really hard feelings towards HRC. As they say, they try to be an apolitical organization. You know, the fact of the matter is, especially the way it's been over the past several years, if you don't have people across the aisle who are willing to support whatever cause you're, you're passionate about, things aren't going to go anywhere. And it was difficult. I mean, I wholeheartedly admit it was difficult for me to see them endorse him when Tammy Duckworth, who had 100 on the the equality index, lost out on the endorsement. So that's a really tough, really difficult conversation situation. Yeah. It bothered me in reading this book because they tried to take this case away from Al at the Supreme Court level. In the end, they did not. But this, in there, it kind of says that they wanted to and he fought and he had supporters so that eventually they had the moot court and he decided that he wasn't the right person. That's very different. Right. But I have to, I have to ask, where are you getting the impression that HRC was doing this? There were certainly national organizations that, that said to Al, you know, we're not sure this is the right case, the right time for this. And Al stood firm and said, 
I have clients who are being harmed. It is absolutely the right time, the right case, and I have to do the right thing by my clients. So he did get pushback from the establishment. No surprise, the gay rights movement, all of these organizations, they plot out long-term strategy. And here was this case, which was focusing on a very narrow thing, and it didn't fit that strategy, and it made them uncomfortable. But Al stuck to his guns, and Al, as I said, he was always, always adamant that it was about his plaintiffs. This is why in an earlier era, Larry Kramer's my hero, not the people who said, oh, let's tone down gay rights marches so that maybe they'll like us more, you know, and support us on AIDS. No, screw that. And so I support what you guys did and said, we've got to do this. And of course you won. And I remember also Diane Feinstein coming down hard on Gavin Newsom, who started it all in San right. Francisco. Right. When there's someone who's doing something that makes whatever the establishment is, whichever side, uncomfortable, you don't know what's going to happen. And that's what our case, that's what Al's fight did. It made the establishment uncomfortable. But he stuck to his guns and he brought them around to his side. And it wasn't that they were trying to prevent him from arguing at the Supreme Court. That whole process, the whole process of determining who who was going to do it, was all about making sure they had the best person in that courtroom. And it was Al's decision to make, not theirs. Exactly. It was Al's decision to make. He agreed to go through the process that they all talked about and put in place. And Al, he made the decision. He said, you know, I'm not the right person to argue this. Douglas says, that's just how Al is. And that wasn't that any organization was telling him he can't do it or shouldn't do it. That was Al making the decision in the best interest of his clients. Jim Oberkfeld, when you went in there and you watched the arguments during that entire period, Love wins. Debbie Sensipper, in order to create more of, I guess, a suspense feel, doesn't really tell us up front, though it does come out, that it all boiled down to one man, Anthony Kennedy. Mm -hmm. You must have known that. All of you must have known that walking in. We did. You know, after oral arguments, I tend to be a positive person, an optimistic person, and I give John credit for that. So I walked out of oral arguments honestly thinking it might be six to three. Don't ask me why. I I can't claim to be an expert in any one of those justices and anything that they asked or discussed, but I walked out thinking we might be six to three. Who did you think would be the other, Roberts? No. Um, who did I think? Maybe it was Roberts. Well, there's Roberts, Alito, 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 Scalia, and Clarence Thomas. Well, it certainly wasn't Thomas or Scalia. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I did. I walked out thinking that might be the result. And we all knew that no matter what, it really would probably hinge on Justice Kennedy. And he had proven in other decisions that he is a firm believer in equality for for the LGBTQ community. So we did. We, In fact, I was even told going into the decision couple of weeks, you know, they ex- I was people were explaining to me how it works, and they said, you know, the chief justice will say so-and-so will read a decision, and they're like, if it happens to be Kennedy, pay attention because it's likely that it might be your case. It's kind of every word out of his mouth, you're going, what does that mean? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, even even when he was reading his decision, my first thought was, we won. And then he kept going, and I thought, well, maybe. The way they phrase things, the way they 
write things and explain things. I wasn't certain until about four or five sentences in that we had actually won. During that period, you know, I'm sure that a part of you was imagining John was standing right next to you. What would be the expressions on his face? Would he be looking to you to figure out what was going on or would you be looking to him to figure it out? I would probably be looking at him because that was our relationship. I always looked to John in pretty much every situation, social situations, anywhere we went. I I liked watching John and he was so good at being a person, being a relationship builder and social. I always looked to him. So I absolutely would have been looking at him. My guess is he might have been looking at me thinking he always thought I was smarter for some strange reason. So I think he might have been looking at me thinking, well, Jim probably gets this better than I do. We would have been looking at each other, which is absolutely perfect. Obergfell versus Hodges. Who is Hodges? Hodges is the director of the Ohio State Department of Health. So the agency that's responsible for birth certificates and death certificates. And it's weird. Now you are in history. How does that feel? Weird, surreal. You know, it's, it's really funny to have so frequently, especially law students and lawyers, but law students who, when I meet them, they say, I just learned about your case in con law. And there's just this excitement that they actually get to meet a named plaintiff. And I love it because it makes the case real to them. And it's something that they never expect to experience meeting a named plaintiff. I chuckle knowing that all of these law students have to learn how to say and spell Obergefell. So it makes me <laughs> laugh because I know it's not an easy name, but it's a really odd thing to think about. I really don't think it's fully sunk in just how much of a deal this is. That I mean, I know it's a landmark case. I know it has ripple effects. I know it's important. That's on a very logical, rational level. The emotional level, I don't think, is really quite sunk in yet. I mean, somebody's probably has an opit in all of the papers waiting for 30 years or 40 years from <laughs> Let's now. Let's hope it's that long. <laughs> that's an, I, that's I mean, an odd thing to think about, Richard. Wow. You'd make the front page of the New York Times. You won't yeah. be there to see it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. Now that's all I'm going to think about. <laughs> I'm going to think about my death. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> What it did do, though, is it changed your life in a lot of ways. I mean, okay, you come home from this, and I assume you're still working? Well, in December of 2014, I got my real estate license. Up to that point, I had had been in corporate training. I had done IT consulting, project management, things like that, and I wanted to change. So when John died, I traveled for some time, and then I got my real estate license. And that was December 2014. And once the Supreme Court accepted the case and then oral arguments and the decision, I had the luxury of being able to take a step back from what I was doing for a living and devote my time to the case and to the cause. And that was one of the things, you know, I felt guilty, and I still do, that it's Obergefell v. Hodges when there were 30 other plaintiffs. It isn't just about John and me. It's about so many other people. And I absolutely felt a sense of guilt, that it was my name and my face getting so much attention, when their stories are just as important, just as valuable. But many of them have told me, don't think that, because we have lives that we can't step away from. We have children. We have jobs. We have things that we have to keep doing. You have the luxury of being able to do that, and you're also really good at representing us, speaking on our behalf. So for me, that was a wonderful thing to be told. And 
I haven't done a single thing with real estate since March of 2015. I noticed something in talking to you, uh, and it's something that comes up when I do an edit, which is I edit out Oz, and I'm not hearing any. Did you actually do any kind of work on speaking or not? No, thank you. That's something over my life I have really tried to pay attention to, be aware of, is how I speak. People have asked me over and over, have you, you must have had media training. You must have taken some public speaking courses. Never. In high school, I sang. I was on stage. I did shows. College, same thing. I was a high school German teacher. I did corporate training. So in a lot of ways, I feel like everything in my past, those things, helped create me as a person who would be comfortable speaking in front of people and speaking on behalf of others. It's just accidental. And that began pretty much the day after the day after the uh, Supreme Court announcement and hasn't stopped. It has not stopped at all. Are you frequently asked your uh, political opinions on Clinton, on Sanders, on Trump? Yes. And what do you say? <laughs> well, I came out in support of Secretary Clinton last fall, and I also absolutely believe in and support a lot of what Bernie Sanders stands for and what he fights for. I just made that decision that Secretary Clinton was the person who best represented me and what I look for in a president. The GOP candidates, that's been disappointing and disheartening to see all of these candidates for the highest office in the land fighting for that nomination. Every last one of them, with one exception, John Kasich, the governor of Ohio, he's the only one who said, this is settled, this is law, move on. Every single one of them has said they will nominate justices who would be willing to overturn Obergefell v. Hodges. And that's a very scary thing. Every single one of those candidates has come out against my civil rights and, and against my worth and as a human being and against the worth of every member of the LGBTQ community as a human being. And that's unacceptable in this country. Orlando, as we learn more and more, you know, I ask different people about this and they say, well, it's com complicated. I don't think it is complicated. I think it comes down to homophobia no matter what. And I agree. I agree. You know, there are so many leaders, so many people with a voice out there who use their position, their voice to do nothing but demean the LGBTQ community, to call us pedophiles, to call us less than human, to call us every name in the book, and to blame us for things that we have no control over. You know, we are not the cause of the downfall of Western civilization, pure and simple. But the fact that these people with voices continue to do that, they have created an atmosphere where violence against the LGBTQ community is not only condoned, but it's encouraged. And the fact that so many of them, since this horrible massacre, this terrible hate crime, so many of them won't, will not even utter LGBTQ or call Pulse a gay nightclub. They are trying to whitewash us out of this story. That is just more homophobia. That is continuing that atmosphere of treating us as less than. I got angry at Rubio and Cruz because both of them said, they're our gay people. I'm thinking, they're not yours. Not at all. <laughs> no, when, when you have done nothing but say you would, you would rescind every executive order 
President Obama put in place to protect our community, to give us protections and rights, you have done nothing but say you would overturn marriage equality in a heartbeat. That is not something a friend says. Pure and simple. Jim Oberkfell, getting back to Love Wins, since you worked on the manuscript and had to hone it down, what was in there and had to come out in order to tighten it up? Well, it was it was trying to decide which plaintiffs to focus on because, you know, there were so many plaintiffs. And that was one of the early things we had to decide. Who are, who are the, the stories, the characters we really want to focus on? So that, I think, was the, the biggest challenge was winnowing it down. You know, we can't write a book that covers 30 different plaintiffs, 30 different couples equally. That's, that's just unwieldy, undoable. So that was a challenge. I would also say, you know, some of John's in my story, not that I can necessarily think of a specific example, but, you know, it talks about John and me as kids. It talks about us when we met. It talks about us when John was diagnosed. Well, there's more of our story that isn't in there. But that was a conscious decision to give more time, more more coverage to other plaintiffs. So it was a balancing act to really figure out where do we focus and what can we cut. Well, I think one of the elements that makes fiction powerful is that individual stories, even the most peculiar ones, somehow become stories for all of us mm-hmm. even more than a general sense. So the more you focus in on the quirks of Jim and John, yeah. in some respects, the more universal it becomes. Absolutely. And there is certainly some of that in the book. But what it comes down to is our story was all about love and loss. Every single person in this country loves someone. Every single person has lost someone they love. So at the heart of it was this story, this theme that every person can relate to. And I honestly think that is one of the reasons why over the almost two years of our case, I received nothing but love and support from across the country. I received four pieces of mail that were less than supportive in almost two years. That's it. And I think it was because our story, our our love for each other and our fight for something that seems so obvious, an accurate death certificate, that resonated with people. And that helped helped along the way. And that's what really we focused on here in the story was simply love. I understand there's going to be a film. There is. Yes, we actually sold the movie rights to the unfinished book before we sold the book. Temple Hope Productions is making the movie and Fox 2000 is the studio. Do we know any of the people who will be in it yet? Or? Not yet. At this point, the screenwriter, Chris Weitz, who is the screenwriter for the movie About a Boy with Hugh Grant and many other things, he is currently at work on the screenplay. And Marty and Wick are the producers from Temple Hill Productions. Right now, that's pretty much the extent of the team. I think the plan is, the expectation is, probably August, September when Chris finishes with the screenplay, that's likely when then the discussion will start around director and go on from there. Yeah, one would think there are three main characters. John, Jim, and Al. That's correct. That's Absolutely. correct. And who do you want to play you? That is such an odd thing for me to consider, Richard. <laughs> I, it's just so strange to think about walking to a movie theater and seeing my life on the screen and thinking about, well, who should portray me? Honestly, for me, all I care is that who, whomever or whoever the, the actors are, I want them to bring the most life, the most 
passion to the characters and bring them to life. That's the most important thing. I will say, you know, people ask me this all the time, and there, there are lots of actors people have suggested, but my, my answer always is, well, okay, if you're going to push me and you want an answer, Shallow Jim will come out, and Shallow Jim will say, well, if I'm going to be on the screen, I want to be hot. <laughs> so, Matt Bomer. Jim Oberkfell, you've been doing this now for a year. Mm-hmm. Has it changed your perspective, and have you had people come over to you and say, I've come out because of you? Absolutely. That has happened to me countless times. And it's happened most frequently when I've spoken at universities. I'll have a student come up and say, Jim, I I just have to tell you, you know, I just watched your and John's story. Or after watching you and being here this evening, you gave me the courage to come out. And that's an incredibly powerful thing to be told, to hear that something I did or our story can have that type of an effect on a person. I love that. I mean, that is the most wonderful gift that anyone could ever give me, to know that watching John and me, watching me, watching the other plaintiffs fight for what's right, gave them the courage to take that step and to start embracing who they are and to work towards being the people they deserve to be. And for Jim Oberkfell, what lies in the future? That's a really good question. Um, I've decided, you know, I've been in Cincinnati for 31 years, and I've been splitting my time when I'm not traveling between Cincinnati and Washington, D.C., but I've decided I'm going to move to D.C. With everything I'm doing, advocacy work, being more politically involved, D.C. seems to be the place to be. And it's also, I think, I think about what John told me over and over and over as he was dying. He's told me, find love again, live again, don't give up move on. And so for me, moving to D.C. is part of that. It's a chance for me to have a new adventure and in a way honor John because he gave me the okay and he gave me the courage to do that. Would the Jim Oberkfell of 2012, looking at the Jim Oberkfell of 2016, be astonished? Astounded. And from the simplest perspective when John and I would go to social events and it'd be a big gathering or whatever, I always held back and let John do that because that was his skill. He was so good at that. And I loved watching him meet people, build those relationships. And I admit I was lazy. I let him, I let him take that role. The fact that I now walk into rooms full of people I've never met, know nothing about, and the fact that I'm comfortable doing that and I can do that really because of what I saw John do. I think that is what would astonish Jim of 2012 more than anything. If there's anything that would have astounded, it was the fact that there would be a case called Oberkfell versus Hodges, which would create gay marriage in 50 states. Absolutely. You know, especially 2012, I was never an activist. John was never an activist. And the fact that we found ourselves in that situation and I've run with it, I've realized how important and how meaningful doing that can be and how meaningful that is. And I've run with it. So the fact that I'll be able to pick up a textbook and flip to the index under O and see my name listed. And I hear it on the TV. I hear it on the radio. I see it in print. And I honestly still have to pinch myself and remind myself that that Obergefell, that's referring to me. And that's a really odd thing, nothing I ever dreamt. But it's really referring to something a whole lot bigger too. It is. And that's the best thing, best thing of all. You've been listening to a June 2016 interview with Jim Oberkfell, co-author of Love Wins, which detailed the final and triumphant battle for gay marriage in the Supreme Court.
Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.